Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. This morning, as we are taking a look at the book of Exodus and taking a look at a part of a very, a, a very crucial part of the book of Exodus, not only for Christian faith and life in general, but specifically for us as Seventh-day Adventists. So let's have a word of prayer before we jump into the text together. Lord God, we are so grateful this morning for the gift of the Sabbath. We're thankful for the gift of a church community, church family, the opportunity to be together, to sing praises to you, to pray together. Lord, to share our burdens and our needs before one another, and Lord, finally, to open the word together. This morning, Lord, as we open your word, we trust, we have faith that you speak to us through it, that you have something to say to us this morning. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that your spirit would speak to us, Lord, and we would see what you have for us this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, In 2005, uh, some time ago now, There was a case that came before the U.S. Supreme Court in Texas, in Austin, in front of the State House. There was a monument of the Ten Commandments that was displayed. And this monument had been there for a while. It was built in 1961. But in 2005, there was a lawyer named Thomas Van Orden who was challenging the constitutionality of displaying what he said was an overtly religious symbol in front of a government building claiming that it, is, uh, that it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. And this case went through the courts, as cases do, until it got all the way to the Supreme Court, where the court, in a 5-4 to four vote, ruled that the monument did not violate the Establishment Clause, concurring with the ruling of a lower court that had said that while the monument did certainly convey a religious message, It also displayed a secular message as well. And of course, this became big in the never-ending culture wars that are always going on, with some on one side claiming that it was inappropriate, shouldn't be there, others on the other side saying, no, it's inappropriate, that you should have tried to remove it in any way. Anytime something like that happens, the culture wars kick up in earnest. But I think buried within that Supreme Court ruling, when you pull the culture war away from it, What is revealed in that particular ruling is an attitude that I think we all have, religious and secular alike, towards this very well-known part of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. And that attitude for most of us is that these Ten Commandments are a set of laws in the very strictest sense of what it means to be a law. A set of rules that need to be abided by, that when these rules are abided by, we can become fully functioning members of society. 
That's what the rule of law means in the societies that we live in, right? That if you abide by the laws, you're a fully functioning member of society. We often apply the same thing to the Ten Commandments, that only when these rules are kept, only when these laws are abided by, it's only at that point that we can be fully functioning members of a society, whether religious or secular. And in this Supreme Court ruling, it was revealed that in the United States, a nation of laws, we inherited such a view of what the law is from these Ten Commandments. That the, orig- that the Ten Commandments were the original laws that told you what to do, what not to do. And if you do them or don't do them, then there are either A, consequences within the community if you don't do them, right? Or B, at some point... If you continue to not follow these rules, you just simply won't be part of the community. That in that sense, what a law does, and in particular what these Ten Commandments do, is they create a boundary. Right? A boundary for who's in and who's out. If you abide by these things, you're in. If you don't, then you're out. And in this sense, the idea of law, and therefore the idea of the Ten Commandments as as the original law, it's very restrictive. And I would say that most of us go through life looking at laws and even possibly looking at something like the Ten Commandments through that same lens. Maybe for those of you who grew up Seventh-day Adventist as I did, it's a privilege and a blessing and, and something I'm very grateful for. But if you grew up that way, then maybe a phrase that you are familiar with is guarding the edges of the Sabbath. Anticipating the time that came every week when the law, the Ten Commandments, right, dictated what you could do, but on the flip side, what you could not do. And in that sense, the law is very restricted because this is often our experience, I would argue, with authority and with the laws that authority gives in order to let you know that they are the authority, that the the, the laws are there to say, this is what you can do, this is what you cannot do, and if you cannot do it, you cannot be part of the community. But the question that comes to my mind at this particular point of the discussion is a fairly simple question. Is that really a picture of God's authority? That this is a set of laws, a set of do's, a set of don'ts that preserve God's authority in order to let us know that if we don't follow them, if we're falling in line under God, if we're not falling in line under God's authority, then there is something horrible out there beyond the boundary of the community that awaits us. If I'm being honest, in my mind, that sounds like a very insecure authority figure. I'm at the stage of life with young children, and maybe some of you can think back to a stage that you were in, or maybe you have grandchildren, or maybe you've experienced this yourselves, but we're kind of at the age now where we start to push back on things a little bit, 
Whereas the child psychology tends to develop and you find there are rules there for the do's and the do nots that sometimes you push a little bit to find out why I have to stay in line to obey these rules, these do's and these do nots. And so sometimes I find myself in situations where I've asked one of my children, hey, don't do that. You know, it's not good. You explain why it's not good, why this is good for you to listen to mommy and daddy, all that sort of thing. And then comes the inevitable time when you walk up on them and you find them doing what? Exactly the thing that you told them not to do. And really the most interesting time that this always happens is when they don't see you walking up, right? When you kind of come onto them, they don't notice you and you're smiling. So I know you've experienced this as well. When you come onto this situation and they haven't seen you, they're doing the thing that you told them not to do and you walk up and my, one of my things that I enjoy doing is walking up and very quietly saying, what you doing? And in that moment, there's always this, this noticeable thing that you can catch where there's the initial shock and surprise where things kind of tense up and they look at you kind of with the surprise and the shock and then it kind of kicks into gear. What is going to happen to me now, right? When I know I've broken the rule, broken the law, how is the authority figure going to respond to me now that that has happened. And I think the reaction that children have where it's tense, uncomfortable, not knowing what you're going to get from the authority figure behind the rules, I think that that reaction is exactly what many of our reactions would be when we find ourselves in similar situations. And I sometimes wonder if with all of the influence that the Ten Commandments have had, both in religious and in secular realms, if that is not the same way that we often feel about them. That they're a good set of rules, a good set of rules that we can all agree on. They express good things, right? But when we frame them in such a way that reflects the primacy of God's authority then I wonder if sometimes they cause us to look at God the same way that my children sometimes look at me when they find themselves in a situation where they have done something wrong. And full disclosure here, in the very beginning, I want to say, I do not think at all that the Ten Commandments at their heart reveal, and and in their intent, reveal the authority of a God who says, do this and you're in, or do this or you're out. I don't think that's what they're about. I think what the Ten Commandments reveal in their very first reading here in Exodus chapter 20, they're repeating in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that we'll see, And then the way that they're appealed to throughout the rest of Scripture, I think what these Ten Commandments reveal is a much more fulfilling vision of what this God actually wants for us. Not just an expression of His authority of who's in and who's out, but an encompassing vision of the good human life that God wants His creation to live. 
And as a law, we find it in Exodus chapter 20. And it's not a bad law in order to, ter- to determine who's in and who's out, if that's the way that we're going to use it. That's why so many people throughout all of time have modeled their laws on this particular law. You've got the religious side of the law in which we religious people find great uh, uh, meaning and great purpose in. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't wrongfully use God's name. And remember the Sabbath. Then the communal side of the Ten Commandments is what most people, religious and secular alike, are drawn to. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. As laws go, if you're going to use a law to determine who is in and who is out, this is a pretty good one to use. For people like us who believe in this God, the first four commandments arrange our lives in such a way that he remains in the place that he should occupy, right? He's above all, before all. He's the primacy. He's the first thing. And then for everybody else, religious and secular alike, the last six commandments safeguard the community itself from murder, from lying, from stealing, etc. If this is a law that's going to show us who's in and who's out, it's probably the best law that there is to go off of. But there's a portion of this text where the Ten Commandments are given the first time that we often skip right over in order to get to the law itself, in order to get to the meat itself. It's in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. In fact, these words, these commands are given in light of what God has already done for his people. Notice the way the Ten Commandments work. God doesn't show up, give his Ten Commandments, and then say, if you follow these, I will bring you out of Egypt, out of slavery. He does it the opposite way. He goes to Egypt first. He releases them, liberates them from slavery, brings them into freedom, and at that point, he gives the Ten Commandments. In fact, these words here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, are just a repeat of what it says earlier in Exodus chapter 19, before God gives the Ten Commandments, in verses 4 through 6. It says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. In other words, these Ten Commandments, if we look at them as laws, what God wants from his people, they are given only after... God has already acted on behalf of his people to save them. God sets up this whole situation where you don't receive blessing after you've obeyed him because you've obeyed him, that you don't benefit from the goodness of God only because of your obedience and only because of your ability to do what God has asked you to do. What we find in this situation is that God has already blessed his people. God has already liberated his people. God has already delivered his people. He's already acted on behalf to save them before he gives them his law. 
And when he gives his law, he does not appeal to the fact that he's all-powerful, that I'm God and you need to do what I say or else. When he gives his law, he appeals to the fact that he cares deeply for these people to whom he's given this law. You will be a holy kingdom, a holy nation, a special people to me. What this means is that at the time that God gives these Ten Commandments, these are not a criteria for who's in and who's out. The covenant community, the Israelites, they are already in. God has already freed them. God has already formed them into a community. In fact, the great irony of this text itself is that while God is giving these commandments to Moses, the community is currently in the process of breaking the first two commandments, of having no other gods before me and no graven images. While Moses is on the mountain getting these commandments, the people are already breaking them. But that does not change their status as the covenant people. Which I think means we can safely conclude that violating these commandments, though it's not advisable, though we don't want to do it, and we'll get to that here in a bit, violating these commandments is not necessarily grounds for removal for the covenant people. The purpose of the commandments is not to show who's in and who's out, because if that was their purpose, Israel would have been out the moment they received them. So the question becomes, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? In order to answer that question, I think what we need to do is a quick flyover of some prominent times in the Bible that the Ten Commandments or the law appears And when we do that, what I think we'll find is a picture of a God who gives these commandments, not so that he can determine who's in and who's out, who's with him and who's not. But I think what we will see is a God who is deeply invested in the lives, in the well-being, and in the happiness of the people who follow him. The Ten Commandments don't just appear in Exodus chapter 20 in the Old Testament. They're repeated again in the book of Deuteronomy. And for the most part, they're just a repeat of what we see in Exodus chapter 20. But there is one main difference in the Ten Commandments between Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And ironically enough, for us Seventh-day Adventists, it's in the Sabbath command. It starts with the part that we're familiar with. Remember the Sabbath day, in six days the Lord created, but on the seventh day he rested. So therefore allow your son, your daughter, your livestock, your servants, the foreigner within your gates to rest. But then it tacks this part onto the end, that it didn't include in Exodus. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. It says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you, To keep the Sabbath. That wasn't included in the Sabbath commandment the first time we heard it in Exodus chapter 20. And the question becomes, why 
however many years after the original commandments were given, why would Moses tack this part on at the end? Now notice, the law doesn't change, right? It's still a commandment to keep the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. But what has changed is the reasoning, the rationale that is given for why the Sabbath should be kept. And the reasoning is, you are slaves. Forced to work seven days a week. No breaks. No days off. No vacations. But I have freed you from that. So why would you still go on living as if you're a slave? Why would you keep working for seven days a week when you no longer have to? When there aren't any more whips at your heels reminding you that you have to? Notice the law hasn't changed. But the understanding of what the law actually means, what was actually intended in giving this law, was clarified a little bit. This isn't a God who says, keep the Sabbath because I say so. This is a God who says, keep the Sabbath because you're no longer a slave. In other words, this is a law that is for the good of humanity. And as such, our understanding of it has to change. Jesus himself does this at a crucial point in the Gospels where he takes two of these Ten Commandments saying, maybe you haven't understood their intent fully. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, where Jesus says, you've heard it said... You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes two of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. And he questions not the validity of the commandments themselves. Notice that. Jesus never questions the validity that these are good commands. Hopefully we can all agree that not murdering, not committing adultery, these are good commandments that we want to abide by. But Jesus, what he does is he questions the straightforward way in which these commandments are understood. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Got it. We can do that. And Jesus says, hold on. There's more to it than that. These commands show a life that is much bigger than simply, hey, don't do these things. Murdering your brother is the ultimate dehumanization of him. He was not worthy of living as you think you are worthy of living. But aren't there other ways to dehumanize him? 
like being so angry at him that you could murder him. Adultery is a heartbreaking offense that can tear apart families, parents, children. But can't that offense start in a deeper way where you not only dehumanize the woman that you are looking at and make her an object, which, by the way, also makes her less than human, but you dehumanize the family that you already have. Jesus' point here in the Sermon on the Mount is not to negate the commands, but to say, hey, there is a deeper meaning behind these than simply do this and don't do that. These laws don't reveal the authority of a God who says you have to do this or else. They reveal the authority of a God who says, I am trying to keep you from committing these harmful behaviors because they will harm both yourself and others. Where Jesus says the commandments themselves haven't changed, but our understanding for what they mean in our lives, for what the God who gave them to us intends for us, that changes. And this is a theme that continues. You move on into the New Testament to Galatians, where Paul has been arguing with a group of Christians who believe you need to follow every aspect of the Mosaic Law, including circumcision and all the rest, not just the Ten Commandments. And in this ultimate kind of concluding on what it means to keep the law. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the kicker. There is no law against such things. In other words, the purpose of the law was to cultivate these exact behaviors. If you want to keep the law, this is the life that you live. These are the virtues that you have. And this isn't the first time that he's mentioned the law. In Romans, he delves specifically into the Ten Commandments. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, it says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet... And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this explanation of the Ten Commandments really only makes sense when we read what came before it. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, one of Paul's more interesting passages, where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Liquor can work here. There we go. Then do what is good, and you'll receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Very interesting and disputed passage of Paul's here. This text, very naively in my opinion is usually interpreted to mean that in every instance the governing authorities should be followed and that they are ordained by God himself to keep order and to execute wrath for wrongdoing in the world. 
I often hear people on both sides of the aisle. We're not calling out one group, we're calling out the whole group, right? On both sides of the political aisle in our country, when it starts to, the conversation starts to turn to criticizing government leaders, and especially if the conversation turns to criticizing government leaders that you happen to support, where people just kind of blurt out Romans 13, right? You can't criticize the governing leaders because Paul says in Romans 13, every person has to be subject and God appoints them and all these other sorts of things. Kind of like the ace in the sleeve, right? It immediately wins every argument you're a part of. But this text and this particular interpretation of this text was given by slave owners and slaveholders between the 17th and 19th centuries. Saying God ordained this because God ordained the authority figures that are ordaining this. That particular interpretation of this text was given by the German National Church in the 1930s and 40s, saying that the Nazis and everything they're doing is ordained by God because God ordains the rulers to be in their place. And if that's not enough to at least sway us just a little bit off of that path of thinking, we should probably know that Paul, who wrote this text, presumably about the Roman authorities, because they were the authorities in the world in which he lived, right? Paul, who wrote this text about Roman authorities bearing the sword in order to keep order and to execute justice that God desires, that same Paul lost his head at the edge of a Roman sword. To the point that I don't think Paul is giving a carte blanche statement here about obeying authorities precisely because there are some authorities that are toxic. Some authorities are diametrically opposed to all that is good. But the only authority, I think what Paul is saying, is the only authority worth obeying is a God whose law reveals him not to be an instrument of wrath, but to be an instrument of love. That is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 13. Caesar, the governing authority, Rome, and indeed other governing authorities in the world in which we live, they view themselves as instruments of wrath, and wrath is how they get you to obey them. But what Paul's point is, the God, who is the ultimate authority, does not rule by wrath, he rules by love. A law which reveals his love. When you obey Caesar and other authorities because you're you're afraid of your wrath, you're missing the point of this God who rules differently than Caesar does. You follow Caesar and Caesar's rule is based on what he's able to do to you, but you obey this God and his commandments because as he said in Romans 13 chapter 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of his law. You have the Ten Commandments in their original form in Exodus where God appeals not to his authority when he gives them, but he appeals to the fact that he has already freed his people. He's already liberated them. You have the Ten Commandments repeating in Deuteronomy where, again, God's merciful actions on behalf of his people are appealed to as part of this law. The reason I'm giving you this law 
is for your good. You have Jesus' clarification on them where he reveals that these laws preserve the humanity of ourselves, the humanity of others. You have Paul's commentary where he says the law is kept as the Spirit works within us and by love. In other words, these Ten Commandments are not given on the basis of authority that says you need to do this to stay in, and if you do them, they're out. You're out. In fact, that is exactly what Paul is arguing against in Romans chapter 13. This is not a law designed to scare you into following God, where you're afraid of his wrath and therefore you keep the law. What the Bible is telling us is that the Ten Commandments reveal what human life looks like at its best. Life where God has already acted mercifully on our behalf, already declared us part of his kingdom, part of his people. Life where God shows us the most authentic way to live as humans, both with ourselves and with one another. Life where we are motivated by love rather than fear. The biblical commentator, the biblical commentator Terence Fritham, writes that the purpose of these commandments for the community is to protect it from behaviors that have the potential of destroying it. And this reveals a God who is not interested in preserving his own authority, but rather a God who is interested in creating the most fulfilling life possible for humanity. Removing the things that have the potential to destroy us so that we can experience the things that give us life. I want you to consider something with me for a second. You've got to use your imagination a little bit. It's an okay thing to do on a Sabbath morning. I want you to picture a big city like New York, Los Angeles. I just got back from Los Angeles. It's a big city. I want you to use your imagination for a second. I want you to imagine that this is how those people who live in that city live. Every married couple is deeply in love with one another. And they live every moment in complete faithfulness and fidelity to one another. Not just in terms of sexual intimacy, but in terms of mutual respect, right? The lack of abuse safe environments for spouses and for children that create opportunities for everybody to grow. Every person is completely content with their own stuff and has no desire to possess other people's stuff. Everyone always tells the complete truth because there's no danger to hide from in obscuring the truth. Everybody totally loves and respects their parents both when they're younger and even as their parents grow into old age. Everybody values the life and well-being of others and never does anything to cause harm to another person. There's no violence, no abuse of any kind. Nobody has any damaged or broken relationships because as Jesus clarified, we don't dehumanize one another. Something like that sounds like utopia to us, right? A perfect society. But all that was just described were the Ten Commandments. 
fleshed out in real life. What the Ten Commandments are is not an ominous monument to remind us to keep in line or else fear the repercussions. The Ten Commandments are not a symbol of toxic and paranoid authority. What the Ten Commandments are is they are an invitation to the good, fulfilling life that the God who has already mercifully delivered us, liberated us, they're the invitation to the good life that he is inviting us to. Life where we are free to love, life where we are free to grow in the spirit, and life where we are free to rest. This morning, what I want to leave you with, don't be afraid of the God who threatens wrath for trespassers. Because this is not the God that he presents himself to be. Instead, what I want to invite you to do is to worship the God who bore the wrath of sin on the cross so that we could experience this good, fulfilling, beautiful life that he is inviting us to. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that in a world of paranoid and toxic authority figures, Lord, in a world of figures where wrath is threatened for the reason for obeying, that you present yourself as everything opposite to that. That, Lord, we obey you. We follow your commandments, not out of fear, not out of worry of what you can do to us, but, Lord, we simply follow your commandments because of love. Because you first loved us, because we love you in return. Because you have delivered us, because you have freed us, because you've borne the penalty for disobedience for us already. And Lord, you invite us to this good life that your commandments describe. So Lord, this morning my prayer is that we would not walk into these commandments as another set of rules, another set of do's and don'ts. But Lord, we would follow them in the way that you truly intended them to be. A journey of freedom things that free us from the things that harm us, a law that invites us away from the things that would do danger to us and invites us into the good, beautiful, fulfilling life that you have for us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time. Thanks for listening.